Perry and Tim Parrish. This is the Puck Junk Podcast. Welcome to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I'm Sal Barry, and you all know Tim Parrish by now, the podcast co-host extraordinaire. Um, extraordinaire. Wow, that's like, that's something. Well, I, I couldn't think of a better way to say that you're like the co-host 80% of the time. And then it's like the other 10% of the time is Jim Howard and the other 10% of the time is Blake Isaacs. But uh, we should do something about that. We should get the four of us talking on one show. I think it's closer to 83.5%. But oh. that's, all right. that's all right. We can round down. Well, how do we? How do you do the math for that? Because there's there's... This is only our 66th episode, and 66 is going to be a big theme of today's episode, by the way. But this is only our 66th episode, so I'm not sure how you get 83%, but I haven't actually counted up how many or this, that, or the other thing. Well, that'd be about 55 episodes for those math gurus out there. So on the docket for today, we're going to talk a little bit about the NHL playoffs so far. We're going to talk about... um, a new hockey documentary coming out, and actually it is out now, Red Penguins. And then we are going to talk about uh, some new hockey cards for this week, and then we're going to talk about collecting Mario Lemieux. So there's a lot of Penguin-themed stuff going on in this episode. Um, I think first we're going to talk about... It's about playing. time. About time, right. <laughs> it took 66 episodes. We'll also make the 68th and 77th episode about Penguins. But Sweet. also, but also about uh, Oilers. Yager and coffee. Yeah, oh, the 68th episode will be like forever since there's like nine teams we'd have to talk about. Right, and Yager's still technically playing, and he still has some cards coming out, and yeah, it's just that'd be a lot. That'd be a long podcast. Um, so the playoffs. So I want to start with what I like about the playoffs so far. So. I'm still fascinated that all of this is happening, that this is actually happening. I mean, you look, if I had to rank the, the, the three major sports that are playing right now, hockey is doing it right. The NBA is doing it almost right. MLB is failing, right? Because the NHL is like, hey, there's less cases of COVID in Canada. Let's sequester our players in Canada in bubble cities, right? And it's working out so far. Nobody's testing positive for COVID. The NBA, they got the same idea. They're like, we're going to put everybody where there's three NBA regulation basketball rinks and all these hotels, Disney World. But then they're putting it in the middle of the cesspool that is Florida. So it's like, you know, if you go outside, you you cross the imaginary line or whatever, and then you're quarantined because Florida is off the charts when it's uh, with its with its COVID cases. And then you have Major League Baseball, which is basically like, yeah, our players are going to travel and they're going to go home at night. And, oh, and they're going to behave themselves. And don't you guys go out and do anything to get you COVID. And then you have, like, teams canceling games. And it's just, yeah, it's. I think that's a mess. So I think, first of all, I think the NHL has been doing a great job at keeping its players safe. They thought long and hard about this. None, none of this seems haphazard. And I mean, I was even watching a little documentary that they put together on YouTube when they were talking about like going into a rink and one of the like reporters or whatever was showing how like they had to, you know, they had like a badge and they'd scan the badge and then they'd get their temperature taken and then they would go to the rink and then they'd 
like swiped their badge that showed that they just had their temperature taken and that they didn't have any temperature and stuff like that. And I'm just like, wow, they really, I never even thought of that sort of thing, but good, good job there. Yeah. That's what they were doing in a lot of places where they're public. For instance, like my wife works in a hospital and for the longest time they were doing that for our employees just to come in the building. And if you had a temperature, you were sent home, you weren't even allowed in. So, um, you know, that's it's one of those things where they have to keep testing for it, and the NHL has done a pretty good job of, of doing that. I mean, the, the fact that they're testing every single day and players are actually going through the whole entire protocol of, of everything, that they've had zero, zero positive tests so far. Um, you mentioned the NBA. You know, the NBA has been tweaking as they went, but they're doing the same kind of thing, being in a bubble and being self-contained and, and, and stuck, you know, all together that the, the, the number of the cases are going to be minimal. Major League Baseball seems haphazardly thrown together just to get the product out onto the field. Um, I mean, I, I don't know how much you watch baseball, but it, it's very creepy to watch a game when it looks like the entire background is uh, the, a game of guess who. Um, <laughs> and it's just weird, um, you know, with the cardboard cutout people, but... Yeah, I mean, you got the Marlins shut it down. You got the Cardinals shut it down. You get enough teams that are that are going to have to start canceling games. I mean, how are you going to move forward? Then you're going to have then you're going to start having players opt out and all of that kind of stuff. Look, the the bottom line is, from a player standpoint, Major League Baseball has the strongest players union of any of the sports. I would say, probably the the strongest. So. The players can basically dictate what goes on. And if they decide, hey, we're done, they're going to be done. And that's just going to be the end of it. So, but yeah, I mean, I like, I like what the NHL has done. I, I was skeptical just like you were. You know, we talked about it on here numerous times about how's this going to work? Is this going to be able to be pulled off? You know, what are we going to do with no fans? What are we going to do with no press? What are we going to do this, that, and the other? It seems to be working so far. And, and I'll tell you what. Watching the games and, and having them jam-packed back to back to back to back all day long with four or five games almost every day. Yeah, I don't get to watch during the day because I'm at work, but just the fact that there's games going on and all of that kind of stuff is is still pretty pretty cool. So on um, Saturday when they started the games, I could not watch. Uh, I could not watch any of them. My sister was getting married on Saturday, and I was a good brother. I was at her wedding. I was not checking my phone to see if the Blackhawks were winning or losing. I know when we were all seated to dinner. Now we had a we had a she had a small ceremony in her backyard. We had up a couple of tents because it was outdoors. We put all of the small tables. We put six to ten feet apart. We put people kind of like two or three to a table, kind of like the people that you came with were the people that you sat with. Um, so that when we ate dinner, you were eating dinner with somebody that you had come with. So you were already kind of like, I don't want to say exposed to their germs, but, you know, we kind of put everybody in their little pod, if that made sense. Right. And then, you know, after dinner, or before dinner, we had masks on and, you know, to talk or whatever. And so we were very smart about it. I mean, there was hand sanitizer and wipes. Um, 
But uh, so I wasn't like, oh, I got to go check on the score. I'll be right back. But somebody just randomly told me during dinner, oh, the Blackhawks won six to four. And I'm like, oh, that's great. So I didn't get to watch any hockey on Saturday. Sunday, Monday, I watched a ton of hockey. Sunday, I watched pretty much, I didn't watch every single game. Monday, I tried to watch every single game, but sometimes I get a little bored and then I kind of start working on, you know, doing other things around the apartment. Like, you know, I'm still kind of gradually unpacking because I have so much stuff from my move and I'm just like, you know, oh, maybe I could put some of these things in the basement. So I'm kind of sorting things and, and, and putting them away and stuff while the games were on. Um, but it, I, I don't want to say too much of a good thing, but maybe it's a little too much of a good thing because I would almost like it if there were four or five games and we could just see each game from start to finish and then the next one start to finish and then the next one start to finish. But it's kind of like, well, if you don't have NHL Network, then we're just going to cut in a little bit here and there on this game, but then we're going to cut back to that game. I mean, I know that they cut away from one game before it was done to start playing another game, and then they didn't start the Blackhawks game, and then I go, oh, wait, no, Blackhawks, I got to turn over to my local sports, uh, my local Comcast Sports Chicago to see that game. So I love the wall-to-wall hockey. I mean, I, I love the day after Thanksgiving when you have the, the, the 11 a.m. grudge match game and then you just have hockey all day and all night. And um, I'm enjoying that for sure. But then again, I mean, I'm teaching from home, so I'm home all the time. So it's not like I'm at work and like, oh, I can't watch hockey because I'm at work. I'm, <laughs> I, I know there are people who are working from work. There are people from working from home and there are people who are unemployed. And I'm kind of in that second group. I'm working from home so I can have the TV on. Well, I'm working from home also, but I can't have the TV. I mean, I could well, if I wanted to, but I'd probably turn the sound down. But I'd be too tempted to just sit there and stare at it the whole entire day. But no, 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 absolutely. And when I'm when I'm teaching a class, I'm focused on that. But, yeah. you know, a lot of times I record lectures ahead of time and then I put them online. Oh, that's why I didn't watch a lot of hockey on Sunday, actually, because I was recording several lectures for my class. So that I kind of did that on Sunday. And then I'm like, Monday, I'm just going to punch out and watch hockey. And that's what I did. And I loved it. And just for the record, I'd like to say that none of us are working from home. We're at home trying to work. There's a difference because it's a totally different environment when you're stuck in your own house with all your stuff and all of your many things to do in your house and you still have to do your work and do your job. And so I know a lot of people are struggling with that and I, I can understand. So, right. But yeah, not working from home. It's at home working. So one thing that I like um, besides around the clock games, I like what they did with the stands. I like how they put the tarps over the seats it yeah. reminds me of winter classic games. Cause you know how, like when you watch a winter classic game, like nobody's up against the glass because it's exactly just... what I said. The first game I saw, I was like, this is watching the winter classic. Right. Where you, they just kind of have like, they, they put some ground cover. Cause I mean, I think originally it was just kind of like you'd look and then you'd see like empty ground and then you'd see seats. And now they got, you know, later winter classics, they got smart and they would stretch tarps with like graphics over that, awkward span between the boards and where the stands were right you know what i'm talking about of course yeah because they're playing in those outdoor stadiums that aren't designed for a small rink in the middle of the field so right stretched out they bring they bring bleachers and things in as far as they can but other than that it's uh 
pretty far distance from the front row seats in the arenas versus the front row seats in a stadium. Right, right, right. So, so, but yeah, I like that too. I like the graphics that they've used on them. I like the colors that they, they use. They do. They work really well with the contrast between the ice and the background. They're it like actually, a dark blue. Yeah, it actually makes. I think it makes watching watching it more enjoyable. Honestly, have you ever been distracted by the beer guy who's wearing the bright green yellow shirts walking up and down the stands? You're watching a game and your eye just immediately goes to the beer man because he sticks out like a sore thumb. I always look around and see what I can see in the background as far as people try to read signs and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I don't get distracted too long because most of the time they're focused down on the ice rather than tilted upward and you can see the, see the crowd, but I'm just glad they didn't do what baseball did. I'm glad they didn't use the cardboard cutout people. That's just silly. Because it it is silly. It is completely silly. It's so that the players don't feel lonely. I don't know what it is. But I was anticipating them piping in piping in sound as far as like ambient noise. They did. For the baseball games, they, they're using yeah. sound from MLB the show. Right. And I was wondering if they were going to do the same thing for NHL. And it's interesting because they do have the sound pumped in, but it's synced up to whenever certain things happen during the game. So if somebody scores a goal, they play cheering. If there's things like that. So, you know, you see like huge hits, you know, a guy takes another guy out or something, or, you know, there's a great save or something like that. Those aren't queued up. So those are the things that you would expect, like the crowd to go crazy about. And they're not. They're just like clapping like, yay, goal. So I could do without that. I mean, if you're going to use it, use it. If you're not going to use it, don't. Well, don't they use it for, for the um, for, for goals? They're using the goal music. No, but the crowd gets a little louder. The crowd, in, in quotes, gets a little louder when they score a goal. It does, but that's it. Like where the crowd would normally get louder on other parts of the game is what I'm saying. Like there's, a hit or a fight. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no syncing that. So we need to hire you to just sit there with a the dial, and then you could turn the meter up and down as Somebody. need be. I mean, obviously, there's a there's a guy playing music or playing the organ or doing whatever because you you hear this stuff in the background and there's music playing in between in between the whistles. Well, I know for Nashville Predator games, they showed on one of the screens, and that's another thing that I like where the screen's more on that in a minute. But for the National of Nashville Predator games, they they showed their organist playing the organ, playing like their power play song. And I like that, like, so they also have these screens hanging up. It's almost like they have Jumbotron screens around or at least along one side for your main angle. I like that too. It's very colorful. It's very active. I mean, it's like they gave the the NHL had enough time to think about this and they said, all right, cover up the empty seats because people are just good. We're going to be a punchline. If we have all these empty seats, they're just going to say, Oh, just a normal Saturday for the NHL. LOL. You know what I mean? So they, they covered up the seats. That's good. They uh, have those screens hanging, which is good with like different, like, you know, they'll show replays, they'll show the team logos. I like that. I kind of like that stuff. I like in stadium graphics um, on like jumbotrons and stuff like that. Uh, So I I like that they're doing all that stuff. 
you know, though, going back to the crowds for a second, though, I was watching um, Toronto and um, and uh, Columbus, and like uh, the Columbus goalie uh, Corpusalo made a save, and like there was cheering because it was a good save. But I'm thinking, you know, Toronto's the home team. They should all be booing right now. You know what I mean? Not cheering that Corpusalo made a save. They should be booing that the Leafs player got, you know, got stopped. And it should be that boo from NHL 94, you know, that kind of boo. Well, they're trying to they're trying to make things seem to be down the middle rather than slanted one way or another. There's Except no home ice songs. advantage. Except for the goal. Like yeah. either yeah. But either play. team that plays, they play their goal song. So Right, because they played I mean they uh um they played Chelsea Dagger when the Blackhawks scored and they were the quote unquote road team for the first two games. Yeah. So it's not like you know, a real home game where the home team scores, they play their song, the road team scores, they play nothing. Right, um, right, right. You know, you'll hear either one, but I, you're right. I like those those big uh, TVs or screens with the graphics on them. They're really, they're really nice. I was, I said to my wife, I'm like, I wonder how much that stuff actually cost, or if they already had it, they just repurposed it. Those screens would look great in my living room. Let's put it that way. Sure, if you had, uh, you know, a sixty re- foot living room. I'll just replace the entire wall with one of them. <laughs> You, no need to, you would need to be back like uh you would need to be back like uh you need to almost have like an empty lot between your house and where that would be i think that's doable hey did you watch on did you watch when uh mcdavid got his hat trick they had they had staff girls throwing hats out onto the ice yeah you know i was gonna bring that up <laughs> that uh later but we'll talk about that now i was called i, I wrote down in my notes hat trick lady yeah. I had to rewind that to see it for myself. I'm like, wait, do they just have somebody walk down and threw hats on the ice? And yeah, I'm it was just like, like one of the staff members. I think there were a couple of them doing it, but they only showed the one girl on the broadcast. Okay. And, and then I gotta, another one came out and picked them all up. Okay. So I can understand if you have fans who throw their hats on the ice because you can't stop fans from doing that because that's part of tradition. And fans just get overzealous and, you know, that's fine. I mean, I never understood, like, here's my $30 hat. I'm going to just throw it on the ice. That's why you always bring a crappy one with you. Right. Just in case. Sure. But, okay, so that just seemed kind of silly. That, that that almost seemed a little bit like, oh, a hat trick. We must like they pla- they planned for this, obviously, if you have somebody on staff to run down and throw hats on the ice. Well, obviously that was part of the part of the marketing design to it. You know, you have to do things from a traditional standpoint. So when traditional things happen, let's do it. I was just waiting for the moment when if they ever brought uh, Batman down there to pump in the fake crowd booing. <laughs> That's what I wonder if they're going to do if they make it all the way through and he has to award the Stanley Cup or any of the trophies if they're going to uh, pipe in the booing. <laughs> They, now, what they could have done, now, they could have done the hats like a balloon drop. They could have just had, like, a sack of hats hanging from, like, the Jumbotron. And then if they get a hat trick, then they just, it just opens up and they fall down. I thought it was interesting. I thought, I, it, it kind of made me laugh when they showed that. And then, and then it made me think, you know, good thing Detroit's not in the playoffs because they, 
they'd end up having one of those girls smuggle in a, an oh, octopus oh, and throw it yeah. on the ice. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading all these things that people would do to bring an octopus in and they'd be like, oh, well, you don't want to just get it straight from the, the fish market. You need to take it home and boil it so that it doesn't smell bad so that when you smuggle it in, it doesn't stink. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're even talking about like, you know, put a little like lemon in there just to kind of like get rid of the smell. And I'm just thinking, wow, that's a lot of work just to have an octopus to throw onto the ice. Like, it's I mean, all about I, tradition. I, I know. But another thing I think that I wanted to talk about that I thought was good was I thought it was kind of fun to see some of the players like watching the game. Like you had the guys who would be in the next game. They'd be like standing in the corner outside of the glass, like watching. Or you'd have guys like I know they kept showing Jonathan Taves on one of the on Sunday night. He was sitting up in the stands watching whatever game. And I think that's kind of interesting. I thought that was kind of funny that like maybe the the, the six o'clock game was still playing. And so the players from the nine o'clock game were like watching it. I, I kind of reminds me of beer league hockey when, you know, it's like almost the, you know, it's like the third period and the other team is already ready and they're just kind of off outside of the rink and they're just kind of standing watching the game. You know what I mean? Like waiting for their turn on the ice almost. Well, that's the thing from a professional standpoint, you don't ever see anything like this. There aren't multiple games with multiple teams playing in the same location, you know, unless you go to the lower levels where there's tournaments and invitationals where multiple teams show up and, you know, it's one team after the next. I mean, this is unprecedented. There's never been anything like this. So the fact that guys are, Hey, I got, 10 minutes i'm gonna go check out and see see if something ha- cool happens and you know walk out there and and watch so right and then on your off night you go and you scope out the competition because you might be playing that team in the next round like uh, like taves did i think that that's really cool harkens back to the old days um so another thing i i like that the nhl is uh, they they're making statements now about the racial inequality uh, because all of the rioting happened when the NHL was on hiatus, all the rioting and, and civil unrest. And I like the fact that the NHL is just basically saying, hey, this is what we, you know, this is what we believe in. This is what we stand for. Matt Dumba made his speech before uh, the game. I mean, he wasn't playing that night, but Matt Dumba of the Minnesota Wild made a speech before the Edmonton Chicago game. I thought it was a nice speech. I love how all the haters who don't watch hockey anyways are like, well, I'm done with hockey because now they have to get all political and stuff and I'm not gonna I'm done with them. I'm not gonna watch them. And it's like you aren't gonna watch them in the first place. Shut up. Yeah, and in the game in his game, was it yesterday or the day before? Yeah. He uh, like just held his arm up in the air. Yeah, and then, the, the and then Black Power salute. Yeah, and then um, the Gold Knights game. It yeah, was, some uh, players like taking a knee. Yeah, uh, Ryan Reeves and Robin Leonard was took a knee also, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And another player, I believe. I don't remember who exactly it was, but you know, guys can guys can support whatever they want to support. And, and believe in whatever they believe in. And, 
You know, you could be Republican and you can be Democrat and you could be liberal and you could be conservative and it doesn't really matter. You know, if you believe in a cause, then you should be able to support your cause and do whatever you want. Um, you know, so guys are making statements, however, you know, however they seem deem fit. So, you know, it is, it is what it is. It's the world we live in now. Well, so. I think if it gets people talking about it in an open and honest way, it's it's a great thing. I just don't like the fact that, and, and there's nothing you can do about this because, again, it's opinion, but you get all of these people jumping in. And you're right. They're the people that don't watch hockey and don't understand hockey and don't understand the culture or any of that. And right or wrong, you know, they, they see, oh, well, you know, one player s- stood up, one player kneeled down. One player gave a speech, you know, that's, it's the whitest sport there is. And, you know, of, of course, of course, nobody supports, you know, black lives matter or whatever, because there's no black people. Well, if that's really what you believe, then you're an idiot. So, I mean, and I saw, I saw tons of that and there's all these people that jump on, you know, tr- typical social media stuff. All the trolls out there that mm-hmm. don't don't pay attention and don't comment on normal things that get posted by various outlets, including the NHL. All of a sudden, crawl out of the woodwork because they have an opinion now. Mm-hmm. Go away. Nobody cares. Nobody cares what you think. You're irrelevant. And so, <laughs> you know, whatever. Some people I don't like, like to get. That's the thing. I don't like to get political. I don't like to bring my political beliefs and things because lots of people disagree with me. And you know what? You may like what I bring to the table as far as this podcast or, you know, those of you out there, we may have traded cards before or talked before or been at a show together and had conversations. And I'm going to guess we didn't fight or argue or any of that kind of thing because we don't have to. You can think what you think. I can think what I think. We don't have to let that come in between us. There can be disagreement and we can move on with our lives and still be civil to each other. You know, it's, it's, it's a novel concept that gets lost in today's world of instant news and fake news and instant media and, and social media. And it's just, you know, it is what it is. I, 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 I've never been one that likes to stand up on my soapbox and go off. I, I did this weekend get caught up in a a couple of opinionated uh, rants on, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Only because it caught me like first thing in the morning, you know, when all the synapses in your brain are firing. And and all of a sudden you feel like, oh, you know, I can really think straight. I don't <laughs> know. Some people are not morning people. I'm not a morning person. But for some reason, my brain works better in the morning. I don't know. But anyway, no, that's that's true of a lot of people that yeah. they they're they're sharper in the daytime than in the nighttime. And uh, yeah, and that's true. Like the older you get, that's why you see a lot of people as they get older, they get up earlier and that's their it's it's better time for them. I still um, haven't started drinking coffee yet, though. Really? My dad, my dad used to say to me all the time, how do you not like coffee? And I'd be like, because it's gross and disgusting and I don't like the way it tastes or smells. And he's like, one day you'll like it. You won't be able to live without it. Well, I haven't hit that day yet. What did you say? It's gross and it's disgusting and I don't like the way it smells. It's disgusting. I don't like the way it tastes or smells. Well, that's actually, I don't mind the way it smells. I don't mind the way it smells. I don't like the way it tastes. 
It's just not a taste for me. I don't like it at all. Now, beer, that's another story. I don't like the way it tastes. I don't like the way it smells. It tastes icky to me. There's a lot of beer that does, but I don't really drink any kind of domestic beer. I'm a craft beer person. Snob, if you will. I drink mostly IPAs and other types of craft beers from local breweries around where I live, in addition to, you know, stuff from the regional area like Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, you know, Kentucky, Ohio, that kind of thing. So that's generally what I like. But I developed a taste for that over time, and I never gave coffee a chance to do that. So, Well, coffee I started drinking out of necessity. I started drinking coffee at 18, and I never went back. The first time I drank a cup of coffee, it was my senior year of high school. They had an awards breakfast for all the seniors who were who had either won some award or were on the honor roll or whatever. I was on the honor roll and I won a writing award. I, I, coincidentally, I won a writing award back when I was 18 and I never thought, hmm, maybe I should be a writer. <laughs> Which is funny how long it took me to reach that conclusion, like two decades almost. But Fast forward to 2020 and you won another one. Well, yeah, and I won one for real. Yeah, but I forgot, actually. So I'm thinking now, yeah, back to that day when I was 18. So they had a, a an awards breakfast, and my mother and I were supposed to go. And my mother was so sick that day, and she's like, I am, I'm so sorry, I can't go with you. I am just, she was just miserable. So I went, because it was before school anyways, so I think I had to be there, because I had school anyways that day. And I remember, like, I didn't know where to sit. I didn't know anybody or I knew people. But, you know, I knew people because they were seniors. But, like, I didn't, I just kind of remember sitting at the at a table, like the corner of a table by myself that eventually got filled in with people that I didn't really know. Like, maybe I knew this person, but I didn't know their family. And everybody had, like, mom and dad and grandpa and grandma with them. And I'm there by myself. And so they asked me to like, do you want some coffee? I'm like, sure, you know, just give me something to do because I'm just sitting here staring down at the table. So they gave me a cup of coffee and then I, I kept drinking coffee because, you know, until the food came because that was, I don't know, it's just like, I just wanted to fit in and not seem so awkward. And then I, you know, I got my award and I went up, got my award and sat back down and then school started. But then later that summer, I started hanging out super late, like, that was the summer that I'd stay out to like four or five in the morning. It was like right after I graduated high school. So I'm 18. So I'm like, eh, I'm 18. I can, you know, and I don't have school the next day. And, you know, and so I remember being like so tired the next morning. So I had to drink coffee out of necessity because I still had to get up and, and do my job every morning. Yeah. I just never got into it. I don't foresee myself getting into it. There's other forms of caffeine if I need to stay awake. True. So getting back to, to hockey, one thing, though, a couple things I don't like. Um, well, actually, no, one other thing that I, 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 I don't know. You tell me about the, what you think about this. I know that on uh, Monday night, they delayed the start time of the Penguins-Canadiens game. Yeah, what the hell is that? Well, that was so that they could fit it in a little bit later because I guess maybe – they're trying to show as much of the games as possible. So even though some games overlap, they're trying to like minimize the overlapping, I think. Oh, that was the reason? 
I, I don't know, or maybe something happened at the rink. I'm not sure. That's what I, I was know. thinking. I was thinking something wasn't right or they couldn't get the camera angle correctly and they were trying to fix something. That's well, what I, was, I thought was happening. I was watching a game two nights ago, or two or three nights ago, and like the lights went out at the stadium for like a split second. For like, not a split second, for like two or three seconds. Um, and, and the announcer just said, welcome to 2020. We'll take a break. I mean, they, they, fl- they flashed off. They flashed back on. It was, I mean, the whole incident was over in like five seconds, yeah. but it was just still kind of funny that I thought, uh-oh, are we going to have a, a three-hour delay? Nah, it was just a few seconds. The referee whistled the play dead, and then they cut to commercial. It was the Minnesota-Vancouver game, and it just cut out for just a second or a couple seconds of, of uh, power outages or power outage. I mean, again, you know, I already, and I already said it, this is an unprecedented thing. So as much as they were preparing for this, they're still, they still got to work out all the kinks because there's plenty of them. I'll take the technical kinks over the Corona kinks any day. Okay. I'll take, I'll take, I'll take a 10, I'll, I'll take a Boston Gardens 1990 power outage that delays the game for 45 minutes or 30 minutes, or however the hell long it was. It was past my bedtime. I just wanted the damn game to end because I was so tired. But uh, that was that Peter Klima triple overtime goal, if you remember. Yeah, uh, yeah so I'll take I'll take that over, like, you know, an outbreak. And, you know, 14 players are sick. So another thing is that when you have all these games going on at the same time, you have six, eight, five or six games a night, you have pretty much NBC goes through their whole roster of announcers to the point where they're not even using their own announcers. Sometimes they're just patching into the local team broadcasts instead of the, you know, the national announcers. I just find that interesting sometimes. Like there are some announcers I like, there are some announcers that I don't like. I don't think I want to pick on anybody tonight because, uh, you know, I might say, well, this announcer is boring, and other people might say, oh, I love this announcer. I'll give you the opposite. One of my favorite uh, CBC Hockey Night in Canada uh, play-by-play guys is uh, Jim Houston. I love his play-by-play. And a lot of fans in Canada are like, oh, he makes too many mistakes, and he's been around forever, and he's old. I like the sound of his voice. I like the way when he calls a game. I just like the way it sounds. It's, it, to me, it just sounds nice. I, I would listen to... He's probably... I put him up there with Emmerich. I mean, they're, they're different types of announcers, but I like them both very, very much. I mean, I think everybody loves Doc Emmerich. Then you kind of get to, like, the C team, and you're like, oh, it's Mike Milbury and to-be-announced announcer, you know? There's only so many guys that they can bring in without tapping into guys that are the quote unquote Homer announcers. Screw that. You know, they, obvious... need bring in, they need to bring in Pat Foley just so the world can know how awesome he is. Well, in our area, that's who you get because everything's blacked out and it's on local. So, you know, but everybody else has to deal with, you know, whoever's on the main broadcast. Now, you're right. I agree with you. I have never heard anybody say a bad thing about Doc Emmerich. Although I will say the opening night when he was doing the announcing, he was announcing from like a studio that was in his house or somewhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, uh, was it Eddie was in the actual NBC studio? Yeah. 
And then Pierre was on the ice because he's in the bubble. Right. That was kind of similar to what a normal NBC broadcast would be for a feature game. Except for I did notice quite a few times there was a delay. Usually Doc's right on the play-by-play. Yep. And there was a delay that normally isn't there. So I could see that that was part of, you know, part of the thing. But, I mean, obviously you're going to get that because people are watching the feeds. And right. Try, trying to announce during the feed. So there's going to be a split-second delay up to maybe a second or two of difference between what they're seeing in their feed versus what's actually getting broadcast. So, you know, look, this is, if you want hockey, this is what we got to have. So. And, and at the same time, I mean, sometimes they don't always get the angles that they want for replays because I remember Pat Foley saying, let's hope they show us this angle or folks, we have no control over what angle we're looking at. We just get what they, they show us and, and go from there. So I think that's, I mean, you know, that's understandable. But at the same time, another thing I noticed was, like, player will score a goal. They'll play that music. So let's just say Blackhawks, because I know the goal song, Chelsea Dagger. So they'll, you know, Patrick Kane will score. and Then they'll cut to a different shot from, like, maybe ice level. And then the music's gone. It's like they're only, like, I don't know if they're putting in, they got to be putting in the music for the stadium yeah it's piped into the stadium but you don't always hear it because i know like they showed like like over like a 10 second span they showed the goal the music playing the players celebrating they cut and then you didn't hear the music and then they cut again and then you heard the music like it was there all along and then it cut you know to a different angle and you didn't hear the music or uh, maybe it's maybe I'm not thinking of the music. Maybe I'm thinking of the crowd noise. I think it might be the crowd noise. Yeah, okay, depends on who's depends on whose mic is turned on as to how loud it actually is. So there's definitely some inconsistency though of, of the sound when you go from angle to angle. Again, this is this is all minor stuff, nitpicky stuff because I'm enjoying the games. I like what the NHL is doing. Look, they're not going to get it 100 percent right. But they're getting, I'd say they're getting 90% of it right. And I see what the most important things, they're getting 100% right. Well, I don't know if you saw any of the numbers, but they they released what uh, was on the weekend. And the Canadian Penguins game on Saturday was a, uh, I think they had 1.5 million viewers on TV. Okay. Um, so that makes it the highest watched game of the year. So since the winter classic, wow, um, but, uh, they're not like earth shattering numbers or, you know, no, it's not, there's not 3 million people watching hockey now all of a sudden, but there never was going to be. So all the detractors that are out there say, Oh, see, look at the ratings. Nobody's watching hockey. Well, nobody watched hockey before except hockey fans. And that's the way we like it. So. Well, yes and no. I mean, okay, I, I like when there's more fans, but when there's too many fans, then uh, then you're competing for the same resources that they are, you know. But you're like, using the term fans. I'm talking about the people that are just watching for the sake of watching, and then they sit there and critique it and be like, I don't understand this. What's happening? Icing? What's icing? What's what's this? What's offsides? Uh, no, go away. Stop watching. Uh, but, I mean, I was kind of like that when I watched World Cup soccer. Because I well, first of all, you watched World Cup soccer, so that was your first mistake. 
<laughs> well, no, because I mean, I remember watching this this match. I want to say it was 2016. Was it Italy and Germany or Germany and Italy? I don't remember, but um, it was an exciting game. The final was one nothing, but it was exciting. It was, or maybe it was Brazil and Italy. I don't remember. Anyway, um, goes to show how much I was paying attention. See, there um, you go. So, <laughs> um, you proved my point. <laughs> well, no, but I wasn't here to be on Twitter to be like, oh, this game sucks. Uh. No, I wouldn't do that either. I just won't comment about it because I don't know a thing or care a thing about soccer. Right. And so I don't watch games and pretend like I know what's going on. All right. So uh, I think we've done this to death. Uh, so far, so good. Uh, NHL, keep doing your thing. We're uh, we're rooting for you. Uh, we want to see this season play out to the end. I mean, we got this far. We got to this point where they started playing again. So far, it's been great. Um, all things considered. So, uh, yeah. Shall we move on? Let's move on. All right. So I want to talk just a little bit about a movie that was released on Tuesday. It's called Red Penguins. It's a documentary about the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Russian Red Army collaborating to make the Red Penguins hockey team. So the premise of the story, and if this sounds familiar, it's because it's something I wrote an article about last year for the Hockey News. And when I wrote the article, I got introduced through one of the people I talked to uh, with Gabe Polsky. Gabe Polsky is a filmmaker from Chicago. He produced the 2014 documentary Red Army, which is fantastic. If you Have you seen Red Army? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's it's good. I mean, I, I loved it. I mean, I you knew what the Russian players were up against, but you didn't really know. I mean, I didn't really know how bad it was until I saw that film, until I saw Red Army. I don't remember when it was, but they uh, they broadcast it on NHL. Yes, Network. they did. So uh, I think it was back in May uh, it was on. But I had, I had seen it once before that um, and, you know, watched it a second time. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was it was very good. It delved into all of the storylines behind the players and the whole aspect of of just the background of the whole organization and, and what the players were forced to go through. And you know, who wouldn't want to defect and leave? Right. I mean, so you, seriously. So you had you had Russian players who were playing hockey eleven months out of the year who were living in a barracks and all they would do is train and train and train and then they would compete. And so the the Soviet Red Army hockey team or the Moscow Red Army hockey team, which was run by the Soviet Army, uh, was basically the national team because their whole idea was, well, why assemble a national team just for two months out of the year? They should play year-round. So that's why the Red Army hockey team was so dominant not only in international competition, but I mean, really in, in, in just so Soviet hockey, it was unfair because they put all the best players on the Red Army team. So they played together, but then they would just go and then they'd win like the league championships because it was like basically the all-star game. And then if you had a standout player who played for a different team, like for instance, Helmut Balderas, then they would, uh, basically say oh, okay cool you're gonna play on the red army team now you know what i mean like once in a while they would throw a um not throw they would 
I don't want to say conscript, but that's probably the best term. Like Artur Zerbe. You remember Artur Zerbe? Oh, yeah. So he played for Dynamo Riga, but he would also play for the Red Army sometimes. Like he was brought into the Red Army for one of its North American tours. And so he didn't like that. He didn't like being pulled away from his team. He probably didn't like a lot of other things. But I'll tell you, many years ago, I wrote to Artur Zerbe. I sent him cards to sign. He signed his Dynamo Riga card. He signed any card I sent him. He did not sign the Red Army card of himself, which I think says a lot where he stands on that. So anyway, so Red Army, then you have the fall of the Soviet Union. You have all the best players go to North America, and the uh, Soviet Union is kind of in shambles now, right? Because communism has fallen. They're starting to uh, adapt capitalism the russian red army doesn't have or the army hockey team doesn't have the backing of the army anymore so they reach out to all the nhl teams and they say hey we need help can you help us owner of the pittsburgh penguins um howard uh, baldwin he he says yeah let's do this so uh basically uh he and some partners tom Ruda's is one of them mario lemieux was another one um Michael J. Fox was another one. Uh, They basically pooled money and they buy 50% of the Soviet army or the Russian Red Army hockey team. But they rebrand it as the Russian Penguins. And uh, one of the, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Howard Baldwin's wife, Karen, uh, drew like a penguin in like a Soviet jersey with like a star behind it and then that kind of became the basis for the logo which they then you know disney took it and they made it nice because disney was actually going to uh get involved with this on a on a bigger level and that's actually talked about in the documentary is that disney was involved in that once upon a time and then now they're disavowed i like what you did there did what disney was involved once upon a time well, they were, but now they're not. Now they're saying, oh, no, no, we had nothing to do with that. Yeah, well, I know, but, you know, Disney and Once Upon a Time, because all their stories are Once Upon a Time. When you, know? you wish upon a star. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so anyway, so, so Red Penguins is the quasi-sequel to Red Army. And um, one of these days, maybe next podcast or two, Tim and I will, will do a, some sort of a, a review of it once you've seen it also. I saw it a couple months ago, and it's not fresh in my mind. But I'm going to definitely watch it again because uh, I'd like to talk about it some more. But anyway, so how can you see this movie? You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Amazon Prime Video. It's $6 to stream. Uh, I want to say it's about 90 minutes long, maybe a little less. I don't remember how long it was. It didn't feel like a, like, it wasn't short and it wasn't like super long. It just, it felt right. It talks about all the things that the Pittsburgh Penguins organization did, not only to basically turn the fortunes around for the Red Army team. And it wasn't just new uniforms with the fancy logo. I mean, they basically brought North American hockey. They said, hey, we want people to cheer. We, let's give them giveaways. Let's have fun stuff, uh, pregame ceremonies. I mean, they actually pushed to have some of their legends like Tretiak to have their numbers retired by the team. I mean, they they basically brought all of these things that we take for granted with North American hockey, and they introduced it to Russia and, and it was loved by the fans. However, and I'm not going to say anything else because I don't want to spoil it, 
when you start making a lot of money, you attract a certain criminal element. And so now you had mobsters who were like, hey, wow, this, uh, this, this hockey team is making a lot of money and we want a cut of it too. And then that started to become a problem because now everybody wanted a piece of that and not always in the legal sense. Got to got to hand it to the Russian mob. They, yeah, they, they really knew how to to uh, run a hockey franchise. Well, you know, it's funny because like there would like one of the, the the team's general manager who wasn't the GM in the sense. So we've heard of Viktor Tikhonov, right? The famous Russian coach. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so Tikhonov was like the coach and the GM, but then the person who was titled GM was kind of more in charge of like their um, travel and stuff. You know, managed. That sort of thing. So their uh, their GM Valerie Guchin, he would just be paying people. He would just pay people like he would give people money. And one of the marketing guys, Stephen Warshaw, he was just like, "Who are those people?" And Guchin would be like, "Nah, you don't need to know about it. Don't ask, or you'll be hanging from your thumbs by the rafters." Right. <laughs> the less you know, the better. So, uh, yeah, it started to get a little little out there. And then the film also kind of frames things into what was going on at the time, because all was not well just because communism fell. I mean, there was rioting in the streets. There were protests. There was civil unrest. I mean, there were people who couldn't eat. I mean, there were, the, the military was broke. I mean, there was a lot, a lot going on. Crazy time. Yeah, I'm going to have to check this out. Because I've watched the documentaries and I, I've seen the little the little YouTube videos and stuff mm-hmm. ab- about it. So, and of course, read your article and other articles. So I've I kind of know about it and know the background about it, but I want to see how they did with the with the documentary. Also, what's uh, new and noteworthy this week is that Tops now hockey stickers are back. I know for a while on this show we would talk about what the new stickers are for the week and who they are. And then I'd also mention what the press run was or the print run was for the previous week's sticker. Well, obviously with no hockey, there's no tops now hockey stickers. They came back as of Monday, but tops is changing up the format. They are now, instead of being $7.99 plus tax for nine stickers. I mean, I did the math. It was about a buck a sticker. Um, now they are doing daily packs and the first pack, which was sold only on month from Monday to Tuesday was $6.99 for five stickers. So now we're way over a dollar a sticker. And then on Tuesday, they issued the second playoff sticker pack $4.99 for three stickers. So, I mean, that's over a dollar 50 per sticker. So this is starting to become pretty expensive i mean i thought like eight nine bucks a week for nine stickers was like "Eh, it's a dollar a sticker Eh." but you know if you put together a panini hockey set you know how expensive those are to put together because you get so many doubles and stuff so it seems so far to be kind of like the response has been a little bit mixed because not only are they more costly but they're not offering that discount like if you buy five packs then the price drops to this. And if you buy 10 packs, the price drops to this. And then if you buy 20 packs, the price goes down further because there was an incentive on every third week, there would be a, a retro sticker 
that would be one in every three packs. And then yeah. on the other weeks, there would be a gold sticker that would be like one in every, I believe it was also three packs. So for the people who are going to just buy one pack like me, I'd spend nine bucks and get it over with. And I'd figure, eh, if I don't get the parallel and I really want it, I'll buy it on eBay. Or if I don't get the special sticker, the retro parallel, I'll buy it on eBay. But for the people who are buying 20 at a time, because their whole business model is get the sticker packs cheaper, you know, pay $5 per pack instead of $9 a pack, and then have the parallels or have the inserts. And now, I mean, one guy I talked with today on Twitter, he's just like, yeah, I mean, I was buying 20 at a time, and now I don't get a discount if I do that, and I don't really know if I want to spend $7 times 20 and not get a discount. Yeah. Well, you know, I've never, I never jumped into the those particular things. I've just watched from a distance and enjoyed the ones that you've gotten. <laughs> but at least from from the state, I don't... I don't know what they're doing, to be honest with you. Other than trying to capitalize on the whole, uh, you know, we got to get this right this second, right now. Let's put the clock on it, and as many people can come in and get it as they possibly can. And so, of course, if it's anything like all the other stuff that's out there, all the bots come in and get it all, and then you have one one eBay account that's selling 50,000 copies of one thing for 10 times as much as it's supposed to be worth. So. Well, no, but with the Tops Now stickers, I mean, they would they would make as many as were purchased. It's print on demand. It's print on demand, but it's print on demand with a cap on time frame. So cap on gonna, time frame. So there's going to be only so many. There's going to be a finite amount based on how many were purchased within that short amount of time. So true, but it used to be a week. Now it's a day. Yeah. So I mean, any I indication see- on the, what the print run was and how many were purchased? Nothing from Monday yet. That'll probably be re- that'll probably be reported a little later this week. Okay. That's well, it could be way- worse. It could be like Panini Immaculate, where it's mm. seventy five bucks a card, <laughs> and you yeah. have to buy a pack of two, so hundred fifty bucks for two cards of two players. I I'm lukewarm towards no autograph. Oh, the Immaculates have autographs. Oh, they do. Yeah, it's two cards, it's two patch cards, and they both have autos on them. Each pack has an on-card rookie autograph patch, and it's they're all numbered 99 or less. And then you get an additional jumbo or a dual jersey, some of them are. But, uh, yeah. You would think still, with, no, no player, with no league license and no player association license that the price would come down a bit on those. Well, they have the... They got to pay for those exclusives with uh, Vitaly Kravtsov and Kako Capo. So, Capo Kako. Do you or, think? Do you think after next season they will release the Kravtsov to the Kraken? He's not even signed to a. I don't think he's assigned to the big club. So wow. So, so I don't think they can if they use the same rules as they did when Vegas came in. So, which brings me to our other point. The Upper Deck Game Dated Moments is back with uh, making cards of current events. And so they made a uh, card about the Seattle hockey team announcing that its name is the Kraken. And the image on the front of the card is the top of the... um, Space Needle, yeah. Space Needle, thank you. The Seattle Space Needle with a Kraken flag at the top, which was kind of nice. I think I would have been liked it better if it was just the logo. 
Like, 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 think about like the new NHL entries card from 7980 tops where they had like the card that was like the four different logos or like the OPG equivalent where they had like new NHL team and it was like a Nordiques logo. I mean, it could have just been something like that and that would have been fine. But I guess the photo's kind of cool too. It makes me wonder if they already had the card made and they were just waiting. You know what I mean? Uh, like no, if they I... had like if they had it made prior and they were just waiting to put it out rather than come up with something for that particular thing like they already had a design like they knew they were going to make it they they already laid it out prior to maybe the logo coming out so you, you think they photoshopped that flag on the space needle i, I don't know yeah you never know well but still it's it's a pretty cool card and it's the it's the first and only seattle kraken card that's out there right now so yeah. i remember when um Oh God! What was it when when the uh, Golden Knights made their announcement? This was before Upper Deck was doing game dated moments, so the only card that was out there was the Tops Now digital card on the Skate app right. of the Golden Knights announcement, and uh, which is kind of weird. I, I still have a hard time accepting digital cards as cards. They're JPEGs to me. Y'all just JPEGs to me. Digital cards. Well, I mean, that is what they are, so. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you guys uh, who are listening, funny, quick, funny story. This was back at the Virtual Sport Card Expo back in June. And so Puck Junk had a virtual booth there, which was pretty much just me and Tim talking to anybody who felt like showing up. And it was a great time. It was a great conversation. But Tim pulled up a picture of a graded Connor McDavid on his cell phone and he held it up to the camera and we couldn't tell that it was his cell phone because the cell phone was about the same shape and size of a graded card and so we all like lean forward like oh my god you have that card and he's like no it's my cell phone see and he like turns it like flips it from side to side and we see the back of his cell phone and then we're just like oh okay it was just funny that uh like, just holding it up, like, yeah, this card here is worth a lot of money. And it's like, whoa, how'd you get that? But yeah. it was just a JPEG in the end. Yep. I would never be so lucky as to own that card. What was that, a McDavid RC rookie patch auto? Yeah, that was the RPA that sold for a bajillion dollars. A bajillion dollars. A few months back. Yeah. But hey, you know what? When you're BGS 9.5, you're worth a bajillion dollars. Um, yeah. I mean, he's no LeBron James, but, you know, he did all right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's just crazy. I agree. Um, so, anyway, moving on to our big topic of the day, Super Mario, Mario Lemieux. Since this was episode 66, Tim suggested that, oh, we should make this about Mario Lemieux because he wore number 66. And I'm like, but Josh Hosang also wore number 66. Shouldn't we make an episode about him too? And about all players who wore number 66? No. No. We shouldn't. So collecting... We should, we should never speak those names again. Wow. <laughs> Hosang's not even... He's not even in the NHL anymore. I think he's got knocked down to the AHL. Yeah. Or maybe he just got fired altogether. He wasn't cutting it in in uh, New York, so 
Yeah, he overslept and missed one practice. I think they were a little hard on him. Well, it's because he wore 66. Blue don't like that. Rick Vive overslept and missed a practice when he was the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and they took away the captaincy from him. And he was, I don't say bitter about that, because I think bitter is a wrong word choice. He said, I understand I'm the team captain, but um, I, uh, is there an airplane over your house? Yeah. I, I was going to say, what is that? I think like, I'm currently being bombed. Yeah, okay. Um, so anyway, so Rick Vive, uh, Maple Leafs captain, oversleeps, misses a team practice. This is in like the mid to late 80s. They stripped him of captaincy. He was a little upset about that. He said, I, I know I made a mistake, but that seemed to be a very uh, heavy-handed measure. Well, he ends up getting traded to the Blackhawks anyways, and he was a damn good Blackhawk for the season and a half or so that he was with the team. Uh, ends up going to um, Buffalo. Blackhawks traded him for Adam Creighton. But anyway, so um, I, I also remember writing to Rick Vive in the 90s and sending him a bunch of cards to sign, and he wouldn't sign any of the Maple Leafs cards because he was still holding a grudge. But then I sent him another fan letter probably around 2007, and he signed everything then. So I think his grudge was was over by then. But um, I'm not disparaging him in any way because, you know, I always find it interesting when a player will or will, will not sign a certain card. Like Randy Carlyle won't sign his 87-88 tops card. You know, the one that he looks like he has gas or something. Yeah, I know the one you're talking about. So anyways, um, Mario Lemieux, collecting Mario Lemieux. So what is it that you want to say about collecting Mario Lemieux? You being the Mario Lemieux collector that I know. I'm certainly not the only one that you know. Mario's the if he's if he's not on your hockey Mount Rushmore, then he's got to be right next door. Um, you know, one of the greatest players to ever play the game, arguably top one, two, three, four easily. You know, with you know, Gretzky, Hal, or and Lemieux. They're, yeah, no, that's covering all your bases right there. That's, there's your there's your guys. No arguments. Um, so. Um, Popular player, spent his whole career with one team, owns the same team now, saved them multiple times from bankruptcy, once by being drafted to the team, you know, multiple times saving the team from being moved or, or sent somewhere else and everything else. He's essentially a hero in Pittsburgh, um, for for lack of a better word. Um, but yeah, I mean, I grew up there. I grew up watching him play. And he was, he's, he's an icon. So why wouldn't I collect, you know, hometown, you know, ho- Homer type player. I wouldn't say he's not hometown. Cause obviously I'm not from Canada, but, um, you know, I collect Pittsburgh stuff. And so, you know, Mario Lemieux was always one of the guys that, that I always tried to accumulate as many cards as I could, um, from top to bottom. So that's been my, probably my longest running hockey collection that I've had since I was a kid, as far as a player goes. Um, but uh, yeah. And like I said, I'm certainly not the only one. There's plenty of Lemieux collectors out there, plenty of more affluent Lemieux collectors. Let's put it that way. Um, and he's got tons and tons and tons and tons of cards available 
on the market that have been produced since his rookie season. Um, you know, obviously not as many in the early years, but it didn't take long for him to catch on. And once, uh, once the card boom hit, he was a popular subject to, to keep pumping out, uh, various versions of, of his image. Now, Tim, you compiled this list, uh, that I found fascinating of every Mario Lemieux insert set or special standalone set with the exception of one subset, which commemorated his return to the NHL, which of course, I mean, that's very notable. That's notable because it's beyond here is just the standard card, you know, the standard Mario Lemieux card. Now it's like, well, here's a five special subset commemorating his return. And so I, I think this, I was actually surprised. This is like four pages long of like, well, it's maybe not four pages long. You just have these descriptions, which are long, but it's still like 30 or so sets or subsets or insert sets that he he had. And I had no idea that he had this much stuff. Like Yeah, so I can't, I can't take full credit for this because I pulled this list a long time ago partially from uh, when I first discovered trading card database. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't have all of this there. I've, I've added to this over the years as I found more things, but I mean, go going all the way back to 92, 93, um, you know, we're talking a list of exclusive, just commemorative Lemieux sets where it's just him outside of the regular general, set or a special set that was produced or anything like that. Um, and so I think on here, you said it's about four pages long. If you expand it out, I think there's like 34, 35, 36. I don't know. Something like that number of actual different sets that are just exclusively Lemieux cards that have been produced by, um, mostly major manufacturers at the time. So with few exceptions, so I'll start with the 9293 the the bun set cuz it's oh, only yes. it's only 3 cards. They're like 3 by 3. They are just these were packaged with bun candy bars. Yes, they were. Made by a company called the Clark Company, DL Clark Company from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um Clark bars. You ever had a Clark bar? Yeah. Clark bars, they were delicious. That was like the Butterfinger before it was a Butterfinger. Was it a Butterfinger before a Butterfinger? Yeah, it's a little better than a Butterfinger, though. Yeah, Clark bars I mean, great. Clark bars were like those weird candies, like Zagnuts and Zeros that you almost never Ugh. saw. Zeros are gross. Yeah. That white chocolate's nasty. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, then Hershey's and, and, and M&M's just kind of came and took over everything. But uh, See, where I grew up, Clark's were popular. Because obviously okay. it was Pittsburgh. You know, Hershey, you have Hershey, Pennsylvania. Well, you have Clark Bars, DL Clark Company. They were headquartered in, in Pittsburgh and they, you know, manufactured the Clark Bars. So, you know, you saw them everywhere. And then that season they decided to make or package um, with their caramel candies um, those Lemieux cards. And like you said, there were three different cards and they were in the package with the chocolate bar. So the funny part about these is finding them or not funny, but the, the, the hard part is finding these in good condition. Well, not only the condition, but the centering, because like here I have two of the same card. Oh yeah. And you Most can see of them how, are miscut. 
how terrible the centering is on this sure. card, on both yeah. of these cards. A lot and, of them are miscut, and you know, a lot of them have stains on them from the candy. I mean, look, there was a lot of this stuff made. You'll go to shows now, and you'll find dealers that have cases of this never mm-hmm. opened. Mm-hmm. I don't recommend eating the chocolate, though. Although it might not be bad. Yeah. I still wouldn't do it. Can't so. be worse than that old peachy gum I had, but yeah. uh it could be. Could be worse. You know, it's I've kinda had... kinda neat that these cards are from ninety two ninety three and he's in the penguins new uniform for that season. So they're like the photos are from the same year. Like the cards are very low tech. Color photo on the back, black uh, a color photo on the front, black and white text on the back. One has like a headshot that's also black and white. But the photos on the front are pretty current. They're from that season. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure what part of the what point in the season or the year that they actually produced these, whether it was beginning or end, but they, they obviously came out after they introduced the new uniforms. Right. So that's that's one set. Um not not the greatest set. I mean, I think I bought it many years ago for like three dollars. Like, I bought one card, like, just maybe, I, I don't know, I found it at a show, and I'm like, what the hell is this? And I bought it. And then, you know, you do your research, and you find out, and you go, oh, it's only a three-card set. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll track it down. I mean, now it's probably worth more than that, but it's not, like, it, Well, it's just not... like anything else out of that time frame, these were definitely overproduced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because obviously it was a novelty added to a candy. Right. So, you know... As much candy that was produced, well, that's how many cards were produced. So there's a lot out there. They're readily available, but like I said, getting them in decent condition, good luck. So, um, and then, of course, there was uh, the 93-94, the, uh, the Mario Lemieux collection in packs of Leaf hockey cards. And I remember that set when it came out. I mean, I remember buying Leaf back in the day. I loved that set. Like, you know, Leaf was really a damn good set of cards. And, I mean, I don't want to say, like, Lemieux was second best to Gretzky. Gretzky had more points. If Lemieux was five or six years older and he started in 1979, would his career, would he have had more points too? You know what I mean? Like, you know, there's all these hypotheticals. You can only just kind of... I don't want to say judge a player on what, yeah, on what they've done or assess a player on what they've done and not necessarily what could have been. But I mean, I think then to like Leaf, I mean, Leaf baseball cards were to me as a kid, those were like high end cards. Like when you saw the Leaf cards, you knew that, okay, you were spending about two bucks a pack on those, or you were just going to buy a pack of tops for 50 cents, which would be cheap. Right. And so Lemieux and Leaf, really made sense at the time because it was like leaf was like a good number two set and lemieux was arguably the second best player to some he was the first but you know like you said we're not gonna argue semantics you know no i get your point if you're looking at statistics and you're looking at numbers and points and goals and all that kind of stuff sure gretzky's not called the great one for nothing i mean there's a reason for that but you got to look at like the, the bigger picture and what Lemieux brought to the table. And I think even Gretzky himself will say that Lemieux is one of the best players he's ever seen play the game. 
the guy had explosive speed and his hands were, I mean, they were, they were unreal. The, the skill that he had and the things he could do on the ice were, were amazing. But I mean, he had a lot of things that didn't go right in his career. Mm-hmm. I mean, number one, he was drafted by the Penguins, which I love, but at the same time, it was the Penguins. And the Penguins at that time were like the Pirates are now. Garbage. So it took many years for them to get decent enough that they could actually compete. Um, did they make the playoffs occasionally? Yeah. But still, they were always wiped out. They never made it that far. Well, and they didn't have a supporting cast because they couldn't afford to bring guys in until later on where they started building a team around him and were able to actually give him the supporting cast and the extra firepower that they needed to offset, you know, what he was going to bring. The other thing too, is he didn't have defensive players or the quote unquote goons or the protectors that, you know, certain other players had the luxury of having, you know, he got, he went out there and as many hits as he took, he dished out just the same. And, you know, it, it led to a lot of injuries you know, his back injury was a huge one. And then the, add to that the, the cancer, um, you know, his, his career was cut way short. You know, the number of games that he played over the course of his career were, were way less than what it could have been had he had a healthy career the whole way through. Right. Yeah, he didn't have uh, – he didn't have uh... – well, you say he didn't have people protecting him, but he, he did. I mean, he had Warren Young his first season. Come on. Hey, Warren Young got 40 goals that year. And he decided to go to Detroit and then come back to Pittsburgh. But, well, he probably wishes he had stayed. I don't know. If I was put on a line with Mario Lemieux and I got 40 goals, I would probably figure out a way to stay on that line with Mario Lemieux and not say, well, I'm going to sign for with the Red Wings, because, I mean, at the time you had players, I mean, these guys were making less. Someone like him was probably making way less than 100000 a year, right? Like, I know when they disclosed salaries in, like, 1989-90, and it was a big deal, you had guys like Jeremy Roenick making, like, 90000 or or 100000 a year. I mean, it was, it, the salaries were really low, so I can't imagine what Warren Young was making in 84-85, but... I can't imagine that Detroit was going to pay him that much more. Although they thought, hey, he would uh, he'd give Iserman room, right? Like, if it works with Mario Lemieux, maybe it'll work with Steve Iserman. Didn't work out, though, that way. But uh, so, anyway, the Leaf Collection Mario Lemieux insert set is, I like it because it shows his career up to that point. It focuses on a lot of the early stuff. It shows some pictures from his major junior days. It shows this great draft day photo where he wouldn't put on the Penguins jersey. Sound familiar? Um, But he's standing next to um, Kirk Muller and Eddie Olchek. It's just such a great picture. I love it. So I thought that was a fun set. Yeah, I like that set. And it, uh, you know, it it was only 10 cards. And, you know, they were randomly inserted. And I remember opening a couple boxes of that way back in the day and, and actually getting like, I think four, four of those cards, including the header card. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Um, and I even saved like, um, well, actually, I don't think he was, was he printed on the box? I can't remember. 
Yeah. Or was he just in the ads? No, he was on the box, and I think it was like that picture of him sitting down, like with his like arms, like kind of like mm-hmm. this. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, it's a cool picture. So, um, you know, one thing I wanted to bring up before I forgot was, um, so I'm just trying to think about like people who collect certain players for certain reasons. And it seems that a lot of people who collect certain players tend to really like that particular team that the player is most known for. Like, I would think that a, um, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example here. Um, a Patrice Bergeron super collector would probably be a Bruins fan, right? I mean, that's fair. That's a fair argument to make. But somebody like Gretzky kind of transcended where you don't have to be an Oilers fan or a Kings fan or a Rangers fan. I won't mention the Blues um, to be a Gretzky collector. Like, I feel that like people who collect Gretzky are fans of any team. They're just they're hockey fans like like Gretzky has kind of transcended like, well, you're an Oilers fan, so you collect his cards. I think Lemieux was almost in that category, but not twice, not quite, because most of the people that I know that collect Mario Lemieux cards, like really collect Mario Lemieux cards, are Penguin fans, like first and foremost. Well, and you you also have, I mean, you said it yourself, Gretzky played for multiple teams. Lemieux never played for anyone but the Penguins, unless you count international play, and then it was Team Canada or, you know, prior to joining the NHL. So I think that if Gretzky had not played for the Kings, he would probably not have had the same. No, <laughs> I can say with 100 percent certainty, yes. if Gretzky did not play for the Kings, that he would not have that same widespread appeal that he has even to this day. Of course like, not. And hockey would be a totally different thing we'd be talking about right now. Right. It, it, so. it would be it'd be right down there with uh, lacrosse. It might even be below. Right. So um, I guess that's a funny thing, though, is that like I, I, I collect some Mario Lemieux cards. Now, like I have like the bun set and I have like a couple other of his sets. And I mean, I even will set aside like Lemieux cards. I actually have them organized in a binder. But most of these are like doubles from that I already have in like sets um, or just like oddball cards or one off cards or maybe insert cards or whatever, where I don't necessarily have like the full insert set. Or, like, even I have, like, some of those, like, stadium club parallels from, like, 93, 94 and stuff like that. Um, But I'm definitely not a super collector. I'm more so, like, I'm at a show, I find a Lemieux card in a quarter box, and I buy it. Because I go, oh, this is cool, from Goodwin's Champions. All right, yeah, I'll put that in my, you know, put that in my book of Lemieux cards. Um, And, uh, but I'm not necessarily, like, a Penguins fan, but... uh, Definitely am a Lemieux fan. Yeah, and I don't consider myself necessarily a super collector, but I have collected him for a long time. Um, I have well over 3,000 Lemieux cards. Not not unique ones, mind you, but I do have over 3,000 Lemieux. Um, and, you know, you... I don't know what considers you a super collector, but I also have, you know, starting lineup figures of him. I have you know retail boxes of 
of consumable products like cereal and egos and i have an old poster cut out of him and i have you know autographs and whatnot magazine covers all that kind of stuff so you know i have things beyond the actual just cardboard of of mario so but again that goes into the fact that i'm also a pittsburgh collector and i grew up loving the penguins and you know so that's part of my you know, part of my collection as well. So it kind of covers both covers Lemieux and it covers being a Penguins fan. So yeah, goes to your point. A lot of Lemieux collectors are also Penguins fans, but then again, a lot of them are just hockey fans in general and can respect the fact that here's one of the greatest guys to ever lace them up. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I mean, I like watching him play when I was a kid. I tried to watch Penguin games whenever I could. I mean, I was at, the Blackhawk game when he made his first appearance back in the league when he, I mean, he made his, he made his comeback game against Toronto, but then he eventually played uh, at the United center and I had tickets for that game and they were the worst possible tickets. They were in the very last row of the third level. There was that first, empty like you know where standing room would be but what they did was they added a row of folding chairs behind the very last row of seats and they just added another row and i remember i worked for my school paper sorry if i told this story before but i worked for my school paper and i heard that mario Lemieux was coming back and i remember writing a column about it for my school paper I don't know if he had announced his comeback yet, but I basically said this is what hockey needs because hockey needs a lift right now and hockey doesn't really have, like, that superstar. Like, since Gretzky retired, you know, they didn't really have, like, you know, like now they have Crosby and McDavid that they could point to and go, you know, there's our superstar. There's our best player, right? I never really felt that, like, Yager picked up that mantle after Gretzky retired. But either way... Uh, the Blackhawks used to give us free tickets. They used to advertise in our college paper all the time and they'd give us free tickets because they couldn't get rid of their tickets because nobody was going to the games. So I told my boss, get me two tickets to Chicago versus Pittsburgh. And he's like, okay, yeah, no problem. And then he calls them and then he goes, yeah, yeah, you're going to have your tickets. Well, then they call him the next day and they're like, no, you can't have those tickets because we need those tickets And my boss is like, what the hell? You run an ad in our paper every week. You don't pay us in cash or you give us half cash and you give me tickets to give away to my staff and they don't even want them except for one guy. (laughs) And he's like, and now I make a specific request and you won't honor that request. And that's just a really shitty thing to do. So then they called him back and he's like, okay, no, no, no. We're, we're good. We got you here. Now, normally when they would give us tickets, they would be pretty good tickets. These were like literally the worst seats that were still seats because there were people, the people behind us were standing. And I remember going there and when Lemieux stepped out on the ice for warmups, everybody rose to their feet and gave him a standing ovation. And it was just such a nice feeling. And actually it was funny because I wore my Blackhawk jacket there because it's a Blackhawks game. But when I got to my seats, I unzipped my jacket and I had on a Penguins jersey. 
Uh, I think it was the one that said Pittsburgh diagonally on it. Yeah. And some guy looked at me and said, you're a traitor. And I said, I'm not there. I'm not here for them implying the Blackhawks. I'm here for him implying Lemieux. And he said, yeah, I know what you mean. And that was the end of it. You know, like nobody gave me crap after that, you know, because I was still a Blackhawk fan. But come on. I mean, besides Sam, who did they have in 99 or 2000, 2001? Eric Daze. I love Daze, but I mean, they just didn't. Didn't they get Amante back? Or maybe they traded him by then. I don't know. I I thought he had a couple stints with them. I I can't remember at that point. I was so tuned out because, you know, home games weren't on TV. Road games were only on cable. I was so busy with school anyways that it wasn't like I was making it a point to watch hockey games. I just kind of kept up a little bit. Well, that's just another example of how he transcended everything because, you know, he's one of the great, you know, one of the great players. So you see a guys come into your hometown and you're like, well, my team's probably not that great, but this is my opportunity to see one of the best players to ever play. And how many more opportunities am I going to have? You know, exactly. And I, uh, I, I saw him in the nineties. I mean, I saw him when, when they would visit Chicago stadium, my aunt would always take me to the Penguins Blackhawks game. Because it was such a big deal. It was like one we'd mark on the calendar. I got to watch him numerous times back in the late 80s, uh, up until the Cups. Once they won the Cups, you couldn't get tickets anymore. That was pretty much it. But uh, So back to that back to that list. There's a couple other, Please, couple yes. other interesting things I wanted to throw out there on, yeah. on here. So we were talking about the Clark, the, the Bun Candy cards and the, yep. the Leaf cards. So there's a few sets that are out there made by a company called Metallic Impressions. Yes. And I don't know how many of you out there have seen these sets, but they all came in tins. Um, They were in little tins, either um, small tins that looked almost like an Altoid tin, and you could lift up the top and there were cards inside, or they were in almost like a Band-Aid container with a hinge top on them, and they would flip open and there were cards in there. All the cards were made of metal. Um, and had photos printed on them, different designs and that kind of thing. But uh, the the novelty was, I, I don't think there were more than five in any of the sets. Um, in 96, they actually came out with a set called Super Mario. Um, the cards kind of had a like a blue marbly border across the bottom, almost like the leaf design where it had that diagonal like triangle shape color with the name stripe that went down. Mm-hmm. These were just like that too, only the color on the bottom was that blue marble color. Um, the uh, the um, following year, they came out with Team Metal, Mario Lemieux exclusive. There were four cards in there. Um, and the I think that's the one that, that you have, I believe, mm-hmm. um, right there. Mm-hmm. And those card those cards are all mostly black border and feature various shots of of Mario. And then the following, they had Mario Lemieux King of the Comeback was, mm. was the next year set. And that one actually came in a a bigger collector's tin, it's about twice the thickness of an Altoids box. Um and there were 10 cards in there. So basically three and those also have a black border around them. So you know, three metallic sets. So if you're into all metal cards, novel concept, 
Um, there's three sets out there that, that you can pick up that are that are interesting and different. Um, and then metallic impressions. I don't, I don't know. Never heard of them again after that. So. I yeah I. I, I, I've had this set forever and I've never opened it and I think I'm going to eventually get around to opening it. Maybe I'll make it a pack break. Um, but uh, were they, were they like a, was this like a local regional type of set or was this like a set that was everywhere? Cause I just randomly found one at a show and I don't even remember what I paid for it. Like maybe 10 bucks or something. I mean, it wasn't really expensive. I don't think it was regional. I think it was a national a national thing, but where it was sold, I don't know because I, I didn't have this at the time when it came out. I only got it later on. So one set that's regional that I do have is the Mario moments set that came out in, uh, 97. So would this have been right after he retired, right? Um, if you're talking about the pinnacle set from that was given out at giant Eagle, then yes. Is it Giant Eagle? Uh, unless you're from there, then it's Eagle. Eagle? Eagle, yeah. Giant Eagle. Okay. So, so this was a set. This was an 18-card set. Yes. They were put out in packs of three. And you get, like, they were the packs were numbered, like, pack one, pack two, pack three, pack four, five, and six. So you would get certain, uh, the same cards in, like, pack number one, right? Like, they didn't change them. Like that was the idea that you wanted to get all six packs, and then that way you got all the cards. Yeah, if if I remember correctly, every pack had the same cards in them. Yes, and they were and they were sequentially released, I believe, on a weekly basis. They made available. Seems about right. So, like the first week, you could get pack one, then the next week it was pack two, so on and so forth. I don't remember if you had to buy the packs or if they were actually a giveaway. I almost think they were a giveaway. But I don't know if that was tied to spending a certain amount of money because that was so long ago. I can't. I can't remember. So here's a strange thing. I I got a ton of these packs at a national maybe about five years ago, and um, it wasn't all of the same. Like it wasn't an even even distribution. All I know it was like a fistful of packs that I bought, and I had no idea what these were. I just thought, oh, okay, the Mario Lemieux cards. Mario Lemieux moments. Okay, that sounds cool. I'll, I'll buy these packs. I, I had no idea what was in them. They were just, they were just there, and I bought them. And then, of course, I noticed that, like, oh wow, I got a lot of pack ones, and oh, I don't have that many pack fours or whatever. So, some of them I might have only had like one or two packs, and some of them I might have had like five or six packs or whatever. But all I know is that like. There are like standard versions and there are gold versions. Correct. But like the gold versions are pretty damn easy to come by because there are some cards that I was able to pull gold versions of or multiple gold versions of, but not the standard version of. Like card number uh, 15, for instance, I got gold versions of it, but not the standard versions. And the only difference between the standard and the gold is that the standard has Mario Lemieux on the side in like a nice deep yellow. And then the gold versions have it in like gold ink, not gold foil, which would make it feel like a gold version, not like Topps gold, gold foil, but just like gold colored ink. So they almost look the same unless you like really scrutinize and you go, oh yeah, that's a darker, that's a gold, you know, that's a yellow gold and that's a, 
a brown gold, if you will. Do you still have any of those in the packs, or did you open them all? I opened them all because, from what I understand, there was allegedly um, there might have been signed cards in there, or no? I don't think there were. No, I don't know. Then I probably opened them, and I was probably like trying to get a gold set and a regular set. And instead, what I have is I have like a regular set with a few gold cards just kind of filling in. And then I have like a few gold cards where I'm like, well, yeah, one day I'll get all of the gold cards and I'll have all 36 of them. But just, you know, add that to the list of all the other sets and subsets and parallel sets that I've never completed throughout the years. Well, it was definitely uh, an interesting set. And the fact that you have them, but you weren't anywhere near regional and you were able to find packs that were unopened. That's pretty cool. Well, it was a national, so that's when you find yeah. these sorts of things. Sure. One of the other sets I wanted to point out, too, is uh, an interesting one that I don't know if you're familiar with, but um, back in, I believe it was 2002, In the Game made a set. It was called VIP. Okay. And not VIP like the free cards you get when you go to the National. Well, they're not free because you paid for your admission, but mm -hmm. um, not that kind of VIP. They made an exclusive set that was a 10-card set. Um well, let me back up. The set VIP was an exclusive set and it was designed for their VIP customers. So people that spent in their top buyers, so dealers and distributors that spent a certain amount of money with them, they made these cards for them. And the, the idea was they were going to be limited and they were, and they're basically impossible to find. Um, there were only 6,000 um, sets produced. And that seems like a lot nowadays, but back in 2002, 6,000 is a very scarce amount considering it was only distributed to certain people. A lot of these did get out into the wild, but they came in tins and there's base cards and so on and so forth, but there's lots of inserts. And one of the insert sets was called Mighty Mario. And it was a 10 card set featuring just Mario Lemieux, um, all memorabilia cards. Um, and so, like I said, the cards came in a tin which was interesting because that was pre, you know, in or not in the game, pre the cup or anything mm -hmm. like that, that, that mm -hmm. came in a tin. Um, and you got one memorabilia card per tin. So the trying to put together and piece together the set would have been not only next to impossible, it virtually would be impossible. You'd have to track down all the people that were distributed the set and try to find all of these individual cards. But all of them were numbered out of 10. Um, they're serial number to 10. The Mario cards are, hmm. um, the other cool thing about this set, it has nothing to do with Mario, but the inside the tin, when you'd open it, there was a collage photo of a player and it could be any player. And most of them were like retired hall of famers. Like there'd be Bobby Hall, for instance. And so underneath there'd be a little photo card that was a collage of pictures of whoever the player was and randomly in this print run, some of them would be autographed. Hmm. So there were all sorts of components and, and gears turning for this, for this set, but it's kind of a rarely, rarely seen set. You can find singles and things from it on occasion if you look for them, but that's the thing. Even the base cards were numbered and they were all serial numbered with random numbers, depending on who the players were. But uh, like I said, if you're, if you're tracking down Mario cards, these ones are, are tough really tough to find 
I've only ever seen one, like actually in person. And again, it was at a national and the guy wanted uh, a mortgage payment for it. So I was not wow. about to, to do that. But uh, so there are some interesting sets like that. You know, Parkhurst, I think it was the same year, Parkhurst had uh, Mario's Mates, which were an interesting set too. And I haven't seen a lot of these either. They should be more, they should be easier to come by, but you don't see them often. Part of that comes from the fact that I don't think a lot of dealers dived into Parkhurst at that time. So it would have been 2002, 2003. Um, I could be wrong on that, but, you know, I, I, I just haven't seen a lot of these particular cards. But they're all numbered out of 25, and they feature Mario with another player on the card. And it's a player that he played with at some point, whether it was international play or on the same team as. And so it has people like Patrick Waugh and Yager and and Paul Correa and Joe Sackick and, um, you know, Lindros and Ron Francis. It even has Jose Theodore hmm. paired up with him on one of the cards. But they were all numbered out 25. That's another really tough one, too. But uh, you know, oh, just so these, point, these point were out. numbered. Oh yeah, they were serial numbered out of twenty-five. Ah, no, yeah, that's so, that's pretty tough for an insert set. Yeah, and each each player or each card has is memorabilia on the card. So, um, you know, again, it's another tough card to find. But if you're a Mario super collector, obviously these are ones you'd want to track down and and see if you can discover somewhere out there in the wild. But uh, definitely, definitely not easy. As opposed to other ones like. Peachy and Tops uh, Mario Returns cards that were actually part of the base set. So they weren't technically uh, a set. You could consider them somewhat of a subset, but they were part of the base numbering um, the year that uh, the year that they put them into uh, the product, which would have been... 2001-2002. Yeah, so 0102. Um, they were cards 326 to 330 i believe and uh, they were tribute cards well then they took them a step further and put the put autograph versions out there um as well as inserting the same things into the tops chrome products the same year so there's different you know different versions out there you know, obviously with Chrome, there's refractors, um, you know, but but tracking down all of the, you know, the Mario Lemieux reprints from those years and the um, the Mario Returns and all those parallels and stuff, you got your work cut out for you to track all these down. So in, in 2001, 2002, so what's interesting about that is that there was a couple of different ways that the companies... Uh, commemorated Lemieux's return. So the previous year, you'd see some cards and maybe late update sets where they announced Lemieux's comeback. Like I have a, uh, a in-the-game card, which shows like a press conference of Lemieux being interviewed about his his comeback, right? So, um, you know, or you might have like, you know, update sets and stuff like that. They were able to get Lemieux in because he came back in January. So, or uh, sorry, late December of two thousand. So he was able to be included in some series two sets and update sets. But the next year, 0102, that's when they've really kind of like, um, like, uh, released a lot of different like tribute sets. So like 
in addition to those ones that you talked about with like the Mario's mates and then like those VIP tin sets or sets that came in tins or whatnot, uh, there were also, Tops did some reprint cards. They did reprint cards of like Lemieux cards over the past 15 years. And then they also did Chrome versions of those. Have you seen either of those? Yeah, the they started with the reprints in 2000, 2001. Um, and they put out basically all of his cards um, from his rookie season all the way through Tops and Opeachy versions. Um, and um, in addition to like the 95, 96 and the 96, 97, which they were just Tops cards of. Right. Um, so those were all included. They were like one out of 12 packs, I think, in both products, in Tops, Opeachy and in Chrome. So you could get one. I think he would get two, two in a box, maybe, maybe mm-hmm. three in a box. Um, so they did that, and you know they were all, they were all like the popular cards. So you know his rookie card, his second year card, his third year card. You know they were the cards you were used to seeing. So then they decided, Tops decided the next year. You know we're not done with these reprints. We need to throw some more in there. So the following season, they added to that madness of doing reprints and this round of them, there were only 10 and they included things like the 8990 award winner card and the highlight card and some other nineties tops and some Bowman and OPG premiere they threw in there. So basically all of these were just reprints of the original card. And then they would have a foil stamp of the commemorative logo down on the bottom. And they did that across OPG tops and in the Chrome products. The Chrome ones look cool just because they're Chrome. I mean, yeah, you know, obviously those those I would much prefer to have because there's Chrome versions. And then, of course, with Chrome, again, there's refractors, which simply have the uh, there you go. No, 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 but something like something like just like a standard 93, 94 reprint. I mean, this is a card that you could have for a quarter. So the fact that they just threw a blob of gold on it. And then they're like, it's a special Mario Lemieux commemorative card. I mean, this looks and feels like it's the same kind of cardstock and gloss and everything as like a 93-94 Topps card or Topps Premier. So some of them I don't get too excited about. Like when I see like somebody wants like $2 or $3 and it's basically like a 91-92 Topps card, but it's a reprint of it. I'm like, it's kind of lame. Because, I don't know, because those Junk Wax cards, it's almost like for $3 you could have the whole set. Why would I want to pay $3 for a reprint of a card that's only worth a quarter or maybe a dollar now? I don't know. But you get my point, right? Like, it's more exciting to have, like, maybe a reprint of some of those key cards or those unique cards. But it costs so much to put that gold stamp and to turn all of the printers back on and keep printing more cards from 10 years earlier. So another tribute that I thought was really, really interesting, and I actually wrote a short piece about this for the Hockey News in my In the Cards segment, um, was 97-98 Pacific. So Lemieux had retired at the close of the 96-97 season, and so for 97-98 Pacific in their set did not have card number 66 which is interesting because pacific was not leaf leaf was lemieux's company you would think leaf might have done something like that 
But Pacific, who was a newcomer to hockey that season, they omitted Lemieux, or excuse me, they couldn't include Lemieux because he was retired, so he wasn't part of the Players Association. But, you know, sometimes they say silence speaks volumes, and sometimes they say it's not who's there, it's who's not there that matters. And so I think the fact that they left card number 66 as blank, there was no card number 66 in that set as a tribute to Lemieux. And I think that was really clever for the time. Now, what makes it even more clever was that when Lemieux made his comeback, the following year for 2001-2002, they uh, Pacific issued a card of Lemieux, and it's designed to look like the 97-98 set, and it's card number 66. So if you actually want card number 66 for your 97-98 Pacific set, you would find it in packs of 01-02 Pacific which I thought was cool. I, I See, this is the kind of thing that I miss in card collecting, is we don't get stuff like that anymore. You know, we don't get stuff like Cool Trade, where you have, like, the different card companies working together to make a, a, a massive uh, special insert set, or you don't have, like, something where, like, oh, yeah, we're making this card now to fill in the gap of a mm -hmm. set that he wasn't in a few years ago. I, I just think that's fascinating. That's such a cool idea. And actually... They made like, I want to say six or seven other cards of guys who were not in the 97, 98 set, but should have been like Marion Hosa. Because I remember finding a Marion Hosa card and being like, wait a minute, I don't have that card. But it was something that they made in 2001, 2002 to say, ah, here's some more guys we should have probably included in that set. So just kind of a neat little uh, insert set that that's unique and not like what you would see these days. The funny thing is, is you would you would never even know. Except for looking at the uh, the copyright date on the back. No, that's exactly it. I mean, when I found out about that card, I'm like, oh my god, that is so cool. I mean, that'd be like if, uh, was it OPG 7273 card number 208, I think they didn't make. Um, it'd be like if they made a card number 208 after the fact. You know? Using the same card stock and the same printing technology. Yeah. Good. Good luck with that one. Well, no, that's not going to happen now nowadays. But like, if they did that the next year, like, oops, we goofed. Yeah. Um. So, um, you know, in another, uh, there's a few other key cards I want to talk about. Um, well, obviously, his rookie card is a, the card to have, or a card to have. I mean, it's a solid cornerstone of any collection, whether it's just a hockey collection or a Mario Lemieux collection. I, I lost count of how many Lemieux rookies I have because I traded you a couple of them. I want to say I have somewhere around nine between Tops and Opeachy. I want to say I have like maybe three Opeachy and maybe six Tops, and that's counting the ones that I have in complete sets. It's just a nice card to have. It's like that card that if I find it and it's for a bargain, because usually you can find a Tops one in a bargain. I'll be like, oh, I don't know if I really need another Lemieux card, but... Uh, it's only 50 bucks. Uh, how can I say no? You know? <laughs> yeah. The, the thing about the, the thing about those rookies, you get them in good, good quality. They can, they can bring a pretty penny just like anything from that era because their quality control on printing was not that good. So a lot of them out there you can get for pretty cheap because they're not really in the best quality. Um, off center, Kind of, you know, maybe soft, soft, little soft corners, imperfections in the printing, 
you know, there were a lot of, uh, a, a lot of things that can play into the, the, uh, I don't want to say grade, but yeah, I guess if you were going to go out and, and actually get it graded and to be honest, people chase after the OPG and high grades. And that's, that's really what the, that, that's really what the big draw would be to, to any of his rookie cards, but you're right. If you can pay, if you can get 50 bucks for, for a Lemieux rookie, do it. And it's in decent, you know, shape. I mean, I bought some ones that were off center. I bought one that had really bad centering. It was like, it had like 90, 10 centering. And I asked a guy from top to bottom. I want to say it was really, really tight to the top and really big on the bottom, the border. And I said to the dealer, I'm like, how much? He goes, oh God, the centering on that's terrible. 10 bucks. I'm like, sold. And then the dealer standing next to him said, I would have bought it for 10 bucks if I had known it was 10 bucks. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, sometimes you can find them. I mean, that's an extreme example of a card that had very poor centering, but I didn't care. It was just, it was a Lemieux rookie card. It was just cool to have. And, you know, if I put that one in my complete set, that's fine. You know what I mean? Like, I can have, like, a nice copy off to the side, and I can have one that's not the greatest in my complete set. Right. Um. Another card I'd like to bring up just because, I mean, I think everybody knows, I think everybody who's been collecting knows about this card, but I still like to bring it up because it's so unique, is his World Junior Championship Team Canada postcard. So it was a set of postcards issued in uh, for the 83 World Junior Championship, and there are a ton of NHL future, excuse me, future NHL players in this set. Dave Andrichuk, Mike Vernon, Pat Verbeek, Gary Lehman, Sylvain Turgeon, Patrick Flatley, James Patrick, Joe Sorella, Steve Iserman, and then, of course, Mario Lemieux. So, I mean, those guys are all in the set. I mean, and a lot of those guys went on to excellent NHL careers, but the fact that it has Iserman and Lemieux is, like, mind-boggling. And so it has, like, a young, like, 17-year-old Mario Lemieux and it's a postcard. It's postcard sized. And it's just cool. And I remember seeing that at a show many, 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 many years ago. I was a kid. And I forgot what the dealer wanted for the set. But it just seemed like, it, to me, it was a grail. It was definitely a collecting grail. Because at the time, it was like, I will never be able to afford whatever that guy wanted for it. It could have been $100. It could have been $200. It could have been $1,000. It was just, it was more money than I had. It was more money than I could ever expect to beg or borrow from a parent or a relative. Uh, but I ended up getting it, I want to say around 2005, I ended up getting that set on eBay. And then I ended up getting a second set that was still sealed and I haven't opened that set and I always debate what I should do with it. Like, should I sell it? Because I'm sure it's appreciated a bit in value because, you know, now that I, after I bought it, some of the guys like Iserman and Lemieux retired, Iserman's now in the hall of fame, etc. Or do I open it and get cards graded? Yeah. If I want to, you know, not see those cards for a year sure i could send them off to get graded so i'm always just wondering like what should i do with this unopened set but either way just having that mario lemieux pre-rookie card to me is in a way it's 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 cooler than almost any other lemieux card i have except for maybe his rookie card yeah i don't i mean i i can tell you right now i don't have that one um the uh 
I've seen it a couple times and I've been I've I've been tempted, but I've never um I've never picked it up. So what does it sell for? I've never priced one out individually. Uh I haven't looked in a while, to be honest with you. Okay. Uh, I was gonna say from a from that rookie time frame, the only odd card I have is the uh the the team issued where what were they uh were they credit cards? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Seven Eleven credit cards. Seven Eleven. I couldn't think. I was gonna say Seven Up. No, they were Seven Eleven cards. I think it was and him I and Mike Bullard on the him front. Him and Mike Bullard. Yep, I have I have him and Mike Bullard, um, and I actually have a graded copy of it. Nice. Um, I don't remember where I got it, but I have a graded copy of it that I think is a. It might be a nine, but maybe I'm mistaken. But that yeah, that's the that's the closest thing to a decent quality, I guess, rookie era one. I mean, I have the new rookies, but they're not in the best shape of the world. But they're passable for me. That's probably the best, the best one I have. But I always like that card because if you look at it, just looking at how how young he looks on that card, it cracks me up. So, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap this one up? Because uh... We're kind of getting a little long in the tooth here, as I like to say. Long in the tooth. Long in the tooth, you know. I mean, no. I mean, we covered we covered a lot of it. I mean, you know, here's a guy that's uh, definitely deserving of of being collected, and he is by by many collectors out there. You know, one of the best players to ever play the game. And uh, for our 66th episode of the Puck Junk Podcast, who better to to talk about for a little while and feature some of his sets than Mario himself. Maybe for our 99th episode, we'll talk about Gretzky. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Yeah. That gives us some time to plan. And then we'll have to go back in time for our ninth episode and talk about Gordy Howe. Well, he could be number 109. Maybe. We can Once we surpass episode 100, then we can do... It's kind of hard to do the same thing for Orr and Gordy Howe since we're past four and nine, so... Well, I think with Orr, I'd just be talking about cards I can't afford. Like, his first True. two tops cards and his first couple of OPG cards are all, like, out of my range. I mean, I'd buy his rookie card if I could find one that I could afford. And I, I saw one for $2,700 a couple, yeah, maybe five years ago at a national. And I was just like, nope, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. You mean it's... you don't have a stack of 3066 test prints sitting around somewhere? Oh yeah, I'm sure they're they're somewhere. I just gotta find yeah, them. You just haven't unpacked those yet. They're mixed in with my pro set cards from '92. Uh, yeah, yeah no, I haven't unpacked them yet. Um, okay. Yeah, the more I unpack, the more stuff I find that I forgot that I had, like this Lemieux metal set. I implore you, don't open it. Okay. I can't tell you what to do, so that's I'm just saying. Why would you not open it? I don't know. I never opened mine. It's still wrapped in cellophane. I know what the cards look like. I've seen them before. I have a couple loose ones, mm-hmm. but I, I've never opened it. I don't know why. I probably should, but I didn't. Well, I like. I just like to pick up the box and like shake the box to make them rattle around. Yeah, that's kind of annoying, actually. But uh, I don't know. I think if you can't unpack cards and enjoy them, then they're kind of not doing any. They're not doing you any service. But, I mean, at the same time, I have unopened factory sets still in the shrink wrap because I like to have a factory set still in its shrink wrap. But then again, I have the same set already in pages. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
So I guess it's just collect how you like to collect. And that's okay. There's no right answer. Like I always say, collect what you want. Who cares what other people say? All right. And I think on that note, we're going to end it. So uh, thank you for listening to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. As always, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please like, please subscribe, please tell your friends. If you'd like to consider sponsoring this podcast, please consider buying a shirt from shop.puckjunk.com. And until next time, thank you for listening. For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at Puck Junk.